Scripture reading today is from Proverbs 23, the first 11 verses. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. When you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is put before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off like to the sky like an eagle. Do not eat the food of a begrudging host. Do not crave his delicacies, for he is the kind of person who is always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the little you have eaten and will have wasted your compliments. Do not speak to fools, for they will scorn your prudent words. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I want to invite uh, Leah to come and so we can pray for her. It is a true blessing uh, for us uh, that Leah is able to join us. She is a friend and a truly inspiring leader in, uh, in the church in Canada. Leah is a co-founder of uh, Rosha Canada, where she serves currently as a spiritual care coordinator. Uh, she's passionate about uh, inspiring others to care for creation and from a place of joy and thanksgiving. Many of us at FBC have joined uh, the thousands of visitors that Arosha hosts uh, in their farm to learn practical ways to care for creation. And uh, we look forward to visiting Arosha again in the near future. She's also a registered clinical counselor. So let me pray for you, Leah. Thank you for joining us. Dear Father, we give you thanks for uh, this day, uh, this day that you have made. We pray that our hearts will be open to uh, reflect on what you have uh, for us today. We pray that we will have the wisdom to uh, live by your word. Uh, please uh, bless uh, Leah as she shares uh, your word with us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is not coffee, this is just water. I'm not, <laughs> I am awake. <laughs> um, it's so lovely to be back with you. This is my third time getting to speak to you in this, well, twice in this place, and then once when you were still in the, the um, magnificent place that you get to move back to soon, I hear. Um, and I wanna open with a question. Um, how many sermons do you remember? To be honest, I don't even remember what I preached on last time I was here. <laughs> Somebody, 
somebody asked me, what did you speak on? I'm, like, it's lo I'm lost. <laughs> um, that might say more about our memory, but it might be say something about just words in general. Here's another question. How many meals do you remember? Lots, I bet. I bet you might recall the restaurant or the house, the candles, the flavors, maybe especially who was there, the conversation you had, the laughter, the drinks, the saying goodbye. So here I am doing a sermon on meals. I don't expect you to remember much <laughs> because these are words, but I do hope that it might inspire you to create a memorable meal with memorable people after leaving this place and see it as a way of living out your faith. So I do come at this topic with about 22, 23 years of experience with Arasha. And when we started the Arasha Enterprise in Canada, it was meant to be about conservation and education. Food was just the stuff that fueled those enterprises. We didn't intend the growing of food or even the eating of food to be a main part of what we did. But landing at our first environmental center and looking out the farmhouse bay window onto a half acre brown beautiful soil, we suddenly began dreaming of growing enough food to feed our guests and our interns. You know, how romantic and sustainable the zero mile diet. We fantasized about roasted beets sprinkled with goat cheese and fresh tomatoes and basil salads. The more we fantasized, the more we realized that like everything else, it's all connected. This means the means is always the end. And if we wanted to take environmental stewardship seriously, then we would have to be consistent with what we ate. I love this quote by Wendell Berry. Eaters must understand that eating takes place inescapably in the world, that it is inescapably an agricultural act, and that how we eat determines to a considerable extent how the world is used. So don't worry, before I get carried away and make this into a Netflix docuseries on food and farming, I am, for this time, going to sidestep the organic versus conventional food debate, as well as the meat versus plant-based diet debate. I'm not going to talk about any of that, but I do have opinions, so you can ask me. But you have Google, you have Netflix, you can investigate that for yourself. Instead, I'm going to spend our little bit of time together focusing on stories from our environmental centers centered around food and then stories about Jesus. And I'm actually not gonna focus on Proverbs 23, um, although it's a lovely passage. <laughs> and of course, it's not so much that passage about food per se, but about being wise, about being humble, about not being greedy, all great things. Um, so I want us to consider um, Jesus. And I want us to bring back into those opening remarks about how readily we can call, re, or how not readily we recall words of sermons. Um, and I'm wondering here, 
if there's anyone here who could recite the Sermon on the Mount, not right now, but just like, can you do that? Anyone? It's three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7. It starts with the Beatitudes and it stretches all the way to the Lord's Prayer. And actually, I bet you can recall a lot because we have blessed are the meek. We have you are the light of the world. Turn the other cheek where your treasure is there. Your heart is also. So actually, you know a lot. So actually, this is a bad example. <laughs> if you've hung around the church for any time, you know that sermon. But I bet you can also recall many of Jesus's meals, not just what he said. You recall that he ate and shared a lot of meals with a lot of different people. His first miracle, in fact, was at a meal, at a banquet. After three days of feasting, the wedding host ran out of wine, and Jesus's mom said to him, hey, they ran out of wine, do something about that. And he took the ceremonial water that was used for washing. I mean, I think it was still clean. It wasn't the used water. It was clean water in these vessels. And he turned that into wine. Because a wedding feast needs wine. And the host would have been embarrassed. And I can imagine the Pharisees taking note and tallying gluttony on their list of Jesus's moral failures. Then, of course, there's the feeding of the 5,000, which is the only miracle in the Gospels that is recorded in all four Gospels. Um, and Mark and Matthew also include another story of feeding 4,000 people, which is a little confusing. <laughs> um, and when we think of eating together, which is the title of this sermon, I think this certainly takes community dining to a whole new level. We all know the story, it's late in the day, the crowds were tired and hungry, and from a few fish and loaves, they were all fed, showing not only Jesus's power over the material world, but his concern for the basic needs of his followers. Then we have the tax collector, Zacchaeus, in the tree, and he, Jesus looks up to him and says, come down, I want to stay at your house tonight, which would have meant, I want to eat with you. You would never stay at somebody's house in the first century in that culture and not have a meal together. And then there's the meal at the Pharisee's house in Luke 7 when one of the many Marys shows up and anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. And this passage actually might hit closest to that Proverbs 23 passage, but in a very ironic way. And of course, the pinnacle of all the meals, the Last Supper, which alongside baptism is one of the cornerstones of sacraments for the church, a place where God's invisible grace is made visible. And you know, out of all the things that Jesus could have done, he could have said, here, I made a friendship bracelet for each of you guys so that you can remember what great friends we were. Or he could have said, okay, I'm going to teach you all a new prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer, part two. Or I'm going to give you one last commandment. This is the most important thing. I'm going to give you some more words, and I want you to remember these words. One more sermon. More things to ascribe to and to believe. But instead, he celebrates a Passover meal 
rich in tradition and symbolism and flavors and liturgy. And at this meal, he chooses to serve. Remember, he washes his disciples' feet, also the opposite of the ruler in Proverbs 23. And he chooses to say goodbye and to ask to be remembered in an ongoing meal, both as host and as the food and drink. And I find it interesting that he didn't wait till the meal was over to do this. Like, now that you've eaten, I have something important to tell you. Instead, midway in the meal, he picks up the cup, much like you do at a wedding feast or like an anniversary party, you raise your cup to toast. And he raises it up. Here's to the new covenant in my blood. And here's to everyone at this table, my dearest friends, John leaning against me, even my betrayer, Judas, here. He offers Judas a piece of bread and a sip of the wine, just like everybody else. If ever anyone in the history of this planet was mindful of a meal, Jesus was mindful of this one. And he instructs his followers to be so as well. And of course, this actually wasn't Jesus's last supper. It was more like a penultimate supper. Jesus cooks a morning supper, which is also known as breakfast, um, on the beach for his followers just before his ascension. And his followers have been out fishing, and they're tired, and they're hungry, and he puts on his imaginary apron, and he roasts some fish on a fire. And you know how good food tastes when you're outside and you're tired and you've been working, maybe hiking or fishing all night? I imagine his um, friends sat down and just loved that meal. They were with dear friends, they were eating good food, and they were hosted by Jesus. So all this is to say that Jesus, just as in his own body, is this coming together of the spiritual and the material. So meals, if you'll allow me to suggest this, meals also are this joining place of what is sacred and what is mundane. The Son of Man, said Jesus, came eating and drinking. Those were his words. And did so not in solitude, but always with others. At least that's how the stories go. The table was always a place of communion, even before the Last Supper meal became a sacrament. So given how important eating is, both to the environment and to Jesus, we eventually decided to focus on meals at our center. So I'm going to tell a few stories, and this is not a prescription or a treatise. These are just stories that hopefully might inspire and might encourage you to find at your own table a place of communion with you, with your friends, with creation, and with God. So when we began with Arasha, we really were into this kind of local eating, zero-mile diet thing. And wherever possible, we eat locally produced produce, which is especially easy in the summer and fall when our gardens are burgeoning. And in so doing, we discover the joys of seasonal eating. And so this has given rise to theme meals. 
One volunteer day, for example, everything we served contained zucchini. This was August, as you can imagine. Soup, salad, bread, even the dessert in the form of chocolate zucchini cake. <laughs> another volunteer day was pumpkin day. Still another beet day. While the challenge of working a root vegetable into a pal palatable dessert can be quite the culinary thrill, I must admit that adhering to a locavore diet has its struggles. By March, we are all sick to death of kale. Because <laughs> you know it's the only thing that grows here over winter. But the main thing is we try to eat real food from a bit lower on the food chain. It's our meager stand of solidarity with our brothers and sisters in the majority world for whom a locally grown, mostly vegetarian diet is the norm. Therefore, the Arasha pantry is full of beans of every sort, as well as rice, millet, wheat, spelt, canned tomatoes, and interns who are now called residents and volunteers must adapt. And it does take some adapting <laughs> in the intestines at least in public. So truth be told, I have wandered into the intern's dormitory and seen their closets stocked with bottles of Coke, <laughs> bags of chips, <laughs> to which I turn a blind eye. <laughs> because life's a journey, and it's a journey I'm still on, as well as my own cupboards will attest. <laughs> Without a question, the apex of Arasha's early culinary history occurred during a fellow named Brian Merrick's tenure as our cook. He was a Regent College student and lived at our center, commuted and cooked amazing meals. In truth, he was more like an artist in residence. In truth, he actually was more like a philosopher artist in residence since he was studying Kierkegaard at Regent. And many an intern would later reflect that though they had come to learn about conservation, or environmental education. In their time, it was their time in the kitchen with Brian that made the biggest impact in their lives. There they had learned not only how to cook a mean curried squash soup, but also how to philosophically connect the everydayness of eating to the larger picture of their most cherished environmental values. But lest you think Brian was all cerebral idealism, let it be known he knew how to party. I think the technical culinary term is feast. In this vein, he instituted regularly occurring theme feasts. And since this was back in the days of CDs, he had a stack of those Putumayo world music CDs. I don't know if you know those. And he would put one on appropriate to the theme of the evening. So we had Italian cafe, French playground, Brazilian lounge. And then he would cook up a storm. And the verdict is out on his most successful meal. But my personal favorite was an Italian feast prepared for the Arasha International's Board of Trustees. And the centerpiece of the meal was this dish called timpano. And it was a dish made famous in the movie Big Night with Stanley Tucci. Has anybody seen that movie? OK, yes, thank you. Isn't it awesome? Yes. <laughs> Everyone go out and watch that movie. <laughs> Be inspired. And in that uh, movie, the main character, I think it was the person who played Stanley Tucci's brother, 
said that timpano is um, a dish that contains all the good things in life. And a good portion of the movie involves the making of this dish um, and the eating of this dish. And at Arasha, a good portion of an entire day was spent with volunteers and staff making this dish <laughs> and then serving it um, to our trustees. Ziti pasta was hand-rolled on a flour table. Homemade red sauce simmered on the stove. Ground beef and spices were pressed into tiny balls. We do eat meat on special occasions. These ingredients were layered with peas and chicken and mozzarella and hard-boiled eggs inside a pastry crust baked in a giant glass bowl, giving it the shape of a drum, hence the word timpano. And after about an hour in the oven, the timpanos, there were two of them, I don't know what the plural is, maybe timpani, um, were set on platters before our expectant guests. And the defining moment came when Brian sliced into the first drum, revealing the succulent strata of cheeses and meats and sauce. And the result was so magnificent that we all applauded, just like they did in the movie. <laughs> And we dressed up for theme nights. We didn't dress up for that one. But for other ones, sobreros on Mexican food nights, nuns habits for the sound of music, Austrian food night. <laughs> and of course, plaid blankets pinned over our jeans for makeshift kilts on Robbie Burns night. And for this latter feast, Brian set aside his cooking utensils and his locavore values and purchased a bonafide haggis from a shop called the Celtic Treasure Chest in White Rock, which sold Fair Isle sweaters and fiddle music. <laughs> and of course, haggis. And with all the time he saved not having to stuff sheep intestines with oatmeal, he committed to memory Robert Burns' memorial poem, Ode to the Haggis, which he recited in full Scottish brogue <laughs> to our great delight. Because you've got to love a poem that has a line like, trenching your gushing entrails bright. <laughs> How awesome is that? I can't say that we all love the haggis quite as much. <laughs> Personally, I prefer my oatmeal seasoned with brown sugar rather than tripe. <laughs> but the point is that we feasted. Feasting came easy to us. If there's one thing we know how to do in North America, it's feast. From the point of view of caloric intake, we feast every day, thanks to the way the food industry has smuggled corn syrup into everything we can buy. But what we don't know how to do is how to fast. At Arasha, the ballast for all this societal feasting is the center's noontime meal. So we eat together Tuesdays through Saturdays um, at 12.30, actually, not noon. And often there's up to 40 to 50 of us gathered in the community room. And the meal is often monastic in its simplicity. Hearty bread and a bowl of savory soup is the norm. The MCC um, cookbooks, Simply in Season, they're our Bible for these meals. And they include simple recipes with simple seasonal ingredients with very simple steps. They're the perfect thing for the 19-year-old intern who hasn't done more than boiled an egg, and we have lots of those. So we hand them the MCC cookbooks. 
And these simple meals, I think, find an echoing resonance um, with the moderation and the encouragement of this passage in Proverbs 23. But I think the biggest takeaway from these sorts of meals is not their morally superior way of eating, but simply how food is better shared. It's really about communion. And I looked up the word communion as I found out we're having communion today. This is just from the Oxford Dictionary. It says, the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. thought that was interesting. So at Arasha, our table is a sort of chapel. The meal is a place of communion, of fellowship and invitation. Conversations range from favorite films to theology, to the birds sighted on the morning bird walk, to the number of eggs laid by the hens, to more fam personal family histories. The table is a safe place, a neutral ground for dialogue, a place of knowing and communion. So is it any wonder that the New Testament and the Gospels in particular are full of accounts of Jesus eating meals with people? and with the most unlikely people, with tax collectors and sinners, with dear friends and with a foe? Is it any wonder that Jesus chose a meal to commemorate the abundance of his love? So in closing, I just wanna leave you with a couple, um, few questions as food for thought, pun intended. How do you want to be mindful about your next meals? How will you honor the guests who come with their own stories, their own griefs, their own joys? How will you give thanks? How will you notice that the conversation and ensuing connection can be as nourish nourishing as the food served? How will you be mindful of the symphony of flavors and textures and the miracle of taste buds? And finally, how will you notice Jesus at the table with you? Jesus, the Son of Man who came eating and drinking. Jesus, the bread of life. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.